Hi, this is Julie Wolf, and you're listening to The Probiotic Life. This podcast is where we explore the intricate relationships between human health, soil health, and ecological systems. Join me now for another exploratory conversation on the probiotic life. Welcome, welcome once again to The Probiotic Life. I'm your host, Ben Klenner. Well, today on the podcast, we are talking to Julie Wolf, who is a communications specialist at the American Society for Microbiology. She has her PhD in medical mycology and teaches at a community biolab in New York. I first heard about Julie um, on the podcast Meet the Microbiologist, which she hosts. And I was interested to talk to someone who talks to microbiologists for a living. Needless to say, Julie is an intelligent and uh, thoughtful academic, which is very apparent when she talks. And I was actually a little bit intimidated uh, talking to her, wondering whether I could uh, keep up with her in conversation. But she does a great job as a science communicator, communicating the ideas that we talk about. Uh, In this interview, we talk about how Julie got into studying medical mycology, uh, the difference between medical mycology and mycology in general, Uh, her work with the American Society for Microbiology. Uh, We talk about science communication, uh, genetic modifications, and uh, go into that a little bit. What does that mean? Uh, And we get into citizen science and molecular biology. So before we actually get into the interview, I want to say thank you to all who are supporting the podcast. Uh, Thank you very much for your feedback and for the reviews. That's great. We love it. Thanks for just putting a bit of effort in Uh, for the value that you get. And I want to give a shout out to Green Source Gardens because their Instagram stories are always inspiring. They rock. Uh, They've got a regenerative farm that is awesome and I would love to have something like that going on here. Uh, We did an interview with Nick from Green Source Gardens. You can check out that episode. That's number 17. And you can now support us on Patreon. Uh, Check it out at patreon.com slash probioticlife. So thank you for being part of the evolution of this idea, this podcast, uh, as we slowly build this tapestry of what it looks like to live a probiotic life. So without further ado, here is the interview with Julie Wolf. Today on the podcast, we are talking to a medical doctor who is a science writer and communication specialist at the American Society for Microbiology. She hosts the podcast, Meet the Microbiologist, and she also teaches molecular biology at the Community Biolab Genspace. Welcome to the show, Julie Wolf. Thank you so much, Ben. It's such a pleasure to be on the show. 
I should make a quick correction and say I'm not a medical doctor. I don't have an MD, but I do have a PhD, a doctorate um, in medical mycology, which is fungi that make you sick. All right. So not a medical doctor, but you've done the hard yards and got your PhD. I have, yes. Right. So um, you studied medical mycology as a, a, apart from being a medical doctor. How does that work? What does that look like? So the, the fungi that I studied um, are very similar to bacterial diseases. They're not the types of fungi that you might think of that you would eat like a mushroom, but they're single-celled organisms that happen to have um, often two uh, copies of each of their chromosomes in the case of Candida albicans, which I was studying, um, or a single copy of their chromosome um, of each copy of their gene in the case of Cryptococcus neoformans, which I worked on as a postdoc. Uh, and these single-celled organisms can cause a variety of different diseases um, in many different populations, but particularly in people who are immunocompromised, who, who don't have a fully functional immune system that can fight off this infection. Very interesting. So you focused on um, medical mycology, and what sort of what led you into into go going into that field? Uh, so the the short version is that I was working um, as a first year graduate student. I was trying to decide what lab I wanted to do my PhD research in, in the program that I was in and in many different American programs. You do a rotation your first year in three different labs and decide not only what research is the best fit, but what mentor, what, what um, PhD um, principal investigator might be the best mentor fit as well. Uh, and so I, I happened to be working down the hall from who eventually ended up being my um, postdoc, uh, I'm sorry, my um, doctoral advisor, and he just invited me in to have one of the cookies that his um, then wife had made, and I was like, yeah, sure, I'll take a cookie and listen to a little bit about Canada albicans, uh, and then from there, I, I just thought we hit it off really well. I found his research very interesting. He was looking at how Canada albicans can grow in a variety of different pH conditions. It can actually withstand a wide variety of pH conditions, um, which is unique among many of the um, different medically important fungi. And so I thought, oh yeah, I think I might do a, a, I think it was six weeks, maybe 10 week trial to see if it's a good fit. Uh, and it turned out that it was. And so I ended up switching from what I thought was going to be a career studying bacteria because I, I went to grad school with a real interest in bacterial pathogenesis um, and the host pathogen interaction between um, the, the, the bacteria that make you sick and how the host can respond to that and switched into fungi, but in a very similar system, looking at the single-celled type of fungi. Okay, so it's interesting because I don't hear much about medical mycology. You know, um, on The Probiotic Life, we've talked to um, a few mycologists, mm-hmm. um, but they're, they're dealing with mostly mushrooms. Right. So medical, medical mycology seems like it's a, it's a whole different world. Can you explain to us a, a bit about... What does it look like to um, study medical mycology and what are you actually looking for? So, um, sure. Medical mycology studies the different types of fungi that can make you sick. Now, there's very, very few fungi that can cause disease in humans. Very, very few fungi can grow at uh, 37 degrees Celsius, which is our body temperature. And so that simply our ability to be warm-blooded 
maintains safety uh, from infection from many different types of fungi. But mm. for those that can infect uh, or that can grow at 37 degrees, um, it becomes a little more um, difficult to differentiate. Okay, what is it that allows them to grow in these conditions? And there's, there's a number of different, um, both I would say endogenous and exogenous sources. And by that, I mean an endogenous source would be a member of our own microbial microflora like Candida albicans. This is um, a microbe that is part of our natural microbiota, lives on our skin, it can live within our gut. And uh, at low levels, it does not cause disease. It's just colonizing us as part of our microbial inhabitants. Um, and when, the, when there is, for example, the use of an antibiotic, perhaps um, somebody would use an antibiotic, it would kill a whole bunch of different bacteria and allow fungi to grow because fungi are not going to be affected by some of the antibiotics that would specifically target bacteria. That might open up a niche, allow the candida to grow to higher levels, um, and then, then start to manifest as a disease where the, the numbers of candida cells start to um, produce enough of their virulence factors, enough um, you can say like different um, proteases or, or factors that the host might react against in order to cause inflammation and tissue damage. But I, that's just the endogenous side. I, I also mentioned the exogenous side, and that would be something that is in the environment that we might be exposed to on a fairly regular basis, like Cryptococcus neoformans. Um, you can also think about Aspergillus, um, which is a, a filamentous fungi that's found pretty ubiquitously in soil. Um, others such as coccidioides or um, histoplasma, these are things that live in the environment and we're, we uh, are just constantly kind of breathing them in, walking through, you know, like a, a spore infested um, air. But because we have a healthy immune system, if we do breathe in one of those small spores or a, a small desiccated cell, our immune system is able to kill that cell before it's able to start growing and dividing and then eventually causing disease. But again, in certain populations that might be a little more vulnerable and susceptible to disease, their immune systems do not recognize or do not have the correct immune response to ward off that infection. And so that would be um, something that that is quite common in immunocompromised patients. I, I was just reading today a little bit about Cryptococcus neoformans because uh, I thought I recalled that it had, that there was an essay about it being a neglected tropical disease. The World Health Organization, the WHO, actually keeps a list of different neglected tropical diseases. Um, it is not a member of that particular list, but it is a huge issue, particularly in um, HIV and AIDS uh, patients within the sub-Saharan African continent. There's, I, we're not really sure if there's a different type of strain that is a little more virulent uh, if there's a different type of exposure in, in that HIV-infected population, but it does seem to be a very serious problem um, in that population. So, so it, it seems like there's um, only a, a handful of uh, fungi that are to our detriment that can survive within our microbiome. Uh, has there been any study about any of the, the symbiotic or the beneficial fungi within our microbiome? Oh, goodness. Uh, there probably have been, but I, I can't think of any off the top of my head. 
Um, I think that it's, yeah, I was just, again, so now I'm a a science communicator and I uh, will admit that sometimes reading papers in depth, particularly in my old fields, like I I might be a a little bit behind. I just saw a tweet today though that said something about how um, one particular researcher believes that it's the eukaryotic microbes within the microbiota that are the foundation of the microbiota community. Uh, and that was a really interesting idea. I kind of uh, opened it and have not yet read that tab, but the idea that there's a small foundational population because um, by and large, most of the cells that are part of that microbiome are bacteria. Um, but there are, there's a small um, proportion that is fungus, um, fungal cells, and those probably play an important role in regulating the, the community, although I, I have yet to read that, that uh, mm-hmm. commentary. Mm-hmm. Yes, and and I usually end up only reading the abstracts of of papers <laughs> because <laughs> sometimes I just get bogged down in the. Oh, I mean, I appreciate that you know laying out the scientific process, but um, it's not really what I enjoy reading all the time. Right, sure. Important to get to the the take home message, right? <laughs> That's right, especially as a science communicator. So you mentioned that, and um, we briefly touched on that. But do you want to share with us what what does that look like for you? What are you what are you doing these days? Uh, certainly. So I've switched in 2015. I started working for the American Society for Microbiology, which was um, really a great opportunity for me because in addition to studying this these couple of microbes very in depth, I've just always been fascinated by microbes in general. So microbiology is really my jam and I, I like being able to read broadly. Um, and so what I do is to digest scientific technical reports into smaller summaries. And I can do that in a number of different ways. Um, I help to compose the tweets that come out of the ASM um, Twitter handle, uh, write Facebook posts, I blog and summarize different technical articles into a couple of paragraphs so that the take home message is front and center and, and all of that is on the ASM website. I also um, try to get scientists to communicate their own findings um, in various ways. For example, at our upcoming conference, um, I will be hosting a session on the importance of making sure your message is front and center so that if somebody is reading the abstract or even the title, that the take-home message is um, fairly obvious, uh, which I think I think sometimes in our scientific and technical writing training, that can get a little bit lost. And I uh, also host my own podcast so I can interview scientists of my, uh, on my own and ask them questions about their research and their, their fields. Uh, and I also do a YouTube series um, also through American Society of Microbiology. This is uh, Microbial Minutes where we just basically go through some of the major microbiology-related news stories within the last, uh, it's every couple of weeks, it's not quite regular. Okay. Yeah. So it sounds like you have found a place where you can, you have a bit of, uh, of, uh, free reign to, to do what you want. It sounds like you, you love what you do and you get paid to do it. <laughs> yeah. I should say it's not, uh, everything, uh, that I just want to do on my own. Of course, I'm trying to promote the society, the American Society for Microbiology as a, sure. a place that has, um, authority within the microbial sciences world. I, I mean, I was a member of ASM for, you know, 10, 15 years before I started working for it. So for me, it's, it's just a very familiar source for microbiology, but it's to continue building its reputation and make sure people want to go to ASM when they want to learn something about microbiology. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I think uh, I first reached out to you after I, or at some time when I was um, doing a bit of research for uh, Dr. Jack Gilbert and getting ready to interview him. And I had actually heard the Meet the Microbiologist podcast before, maybe a year or two, or I can't even remember ago. And then I came across it again when I was looking for Jack Gilbert. I'm like, oh, hey, get back into this. And what I really uh, love about it, Julie, is that you you really try and uh, take people through uh, or help them explain it in a way that's palatable to the, the sort of non-academic type. Well, I think that there's uh, obviously a lot of research that goes into any type of podcast. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Um, but one of the, the great things about thinking about talking to somebody is you get to think about what, what do I want to learn? And sometimes the things that I want to learn are, are a little more basic, right? Like I am not deep into the fields uh, like these researchers are that, who might be accustomed to speaking to other academics who study very similar phenomena. So I can say something a little bit more, uh, okay, so what's the application? Or um, does this imply something about infection or whatever the topic is, bioremediation or biodiversity, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So, so let's go back a little bit. Um, you, you shared with us a little bit about um, how you you switched into um, medical mycology, but is there anything sort of as you were you're growing up? Uh, what what shaped your mindset? What shaped you to ask the questions that you do? Is there any sort of things that stand out for you? So I know that many scientists have this defining spark when they realize that they were interested in biology or science, life sciences, whatever it is that they study. And for me, that came very late in life. I was not um, a child who was very interested in microscopes or, um, I mean, I enjoyed science class. I liked school in general, but I had an amazing teacher in high school who taught anthropology uh, and I was lucky because I was able to go on an anthropological dig in high school and so I I entered college convinced I was going to be an anthropology major Uh, and as I took some of the classes I was less interested in you doing that continuously for the rest of my life and so I thought oh no what am I going to do I need to find a new major Uh, and so I was still fairly early in my undergraduate career so I was sampling some of the other classes I I thought well you know i I like sustainability. I like the idea of being eco-friendly. Maybe I'll do ecology um, and study large animals. Uh, I took a class in that field and was not, it didn't ring true with me. Uh, And so then I took a microbiology course and I I think I realized quite quickly how cool these single-celled organisms are. Uh, It might've even been a a cell and molecular biology class because it was just the, the, intricate ways through which these uh, simple, almost in quotation marks, their organisms are able to respond to extracellular environment, nutrients, um, temperature. It just struck me as something that was an intelligence in and of itself, the way that um, proteins through their interactions can continue life. <laughs> and so I, I became very fascinated with um, with bacteria in particular and how they can continue and perpetrate and, and become, uh, become so diverse. And what is it about E. coli within you know, the United States 
uh, or North America that makes it an E. coli in other parts of the world when they're so, you imagine that the environments and the selective pressures would be so entirely different. And so at, at that point, I, I was pretty convinced I was going to go into microbiology, but I wasn't sure what I was going to do um, until I tried my hand at research. And this was at the University of Michigan. Um, and I was not sure um, who would allow me to do research in their lab because I did not have work study. And I knew that a lot of my friends who were working in labs, they, you know, washing dish, dishes or, or maybe some rudimentary um, research projects, a lot of them had work study. And so I, I basically emailed everybody in the department and said, I am an undergraduate student who wants to do research. I want to work in your lab. Uh, I don't have work study, just laying that out there. And I had a, a few hits uh, come back from that in order to have the interview process and ended up in a, in a biochemistry lab, but in a lab that was studying um, lipid synthesis in Streptococcus pneumonia. And so, uh, pneumonia. And so it was uh, microbiology related and certainly a lot of uh, microbial genetics and cloning and uh, a lot of really cool um, protein purification and stuff like that that I was able to do throughout the rest of my career in that lab. Oh, very cool. So what what would you say is some of the, the biggest things that you learned from there or you came away with either experiences or knowledge? I learned the importance of a good mentor. I didn't learn directly from the professor in that lab. I had a graduate student who mentored me through um, you know, like formulating hypotheses, coming up with um, proper controls to to make to design experiments, um, and I found our relationship was very important in not only helping me to learn those things, but to foster my curiosity. And and you know, after we would get some sort of results, she would say, "Okay, what's what's next? What do you think the next experiment should be?" And uh, so I, I think in the learning process, I learned how important it is. Um, to have a good mentor. And uh, similarly, that kind of inspired me to want to be a good mentor in the future. Mm-hmm. So so you, you uh, quote unquote got your hands dirty in, um, in the lab mm-hmm. and then, then you're able to use that experience to, to um, leap forward into what you're doing now. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's funny. Um, you don't realize how fundamental some of your early experiences are, but it really was um, very foundational in my approach for science uh, those those first couple of years. So, so I guess um, as a science communicator, you know what's happening in the lab, you know what the research involves. Uh, what sort of things do you do you find that you commonly uh, help people, help scientists to express? I think a lot of scientists have difficulty understanding what level of complexity, uh, including what level of scientific jargon to use when talking about what they do. No one wants to talk down or condescend to uh, you know, an audience or in a conversation, but by using words that you realize that you're very familiar with, you may be uh, excluding somebody from, from understanding when you're trying to explain what's something that may seem very natural or normal to you. And I often use the word aliquot as an example here because aliquot basically means to allocate or make partitions of something. And I use that word all the time. I'm, I'm going to aliquot 
uh, you know, a solution. I'm going to aliquot some cake. You know, like it's just uh, <laughs> something that I have picked up into my vernacular, and it's not something that if I use it in casual conversation, people are like, "What does that mean, Julie?" Uh, and so similarly, when thinking about the, the techniques that you use or the types of cells that you study, going down into the nitty gritty might not be the best place to start. Uh, and I think, I think the jargon can be a, a little bit of a barrier. And I also think that a lot of scientists tend to bury the take home message. Uh, and this is part of the scientific training. When we learn how to write a scientific paper, of course, you always start with the introduction, saying everything that's ever been studied about this particular field in the past, going through the methods and talking about all the proper controls that you use, the solutions and the, the recipes for those solutions, going through the results. Now, that's where you start to get a little more interesting. Okay, here's the results. And then finally discussing it and saying, okay, here's what it might mean in the context of all that stuff that I mentioned in the introduction. But if you're just talking to somebody about what you do, they might not necessarily need to know, you know that 50 years ago there was this protein sequence that was discovered. It might be more interesting if, if you knew, oh, I work on a protein that influences you know, um, the, the T cell response, for example. Uh, and uh, you can kind of vary your, your language or your jargon based on who you're speaking with. But I think in general, cutting to the chase and not burying the lead, which uh, is kind of a, a journalism turn, but to just lead with the most interesting facts and to build upon that with more and more details is something that we're almost uh, taught the opposite uh, in graduate school. Mm, okay. Um, as someone who isn't academic, uh, you know, um, barely made it through high school, it's interesting to um, talk to people like you who are science communicators. What would you say, what do you see as, as uh, sort of the middle ground or like the things that people really connect with or latch onto when they're doing microbiology? Well, I, I can answer that, but let me jump forward and tell you a little bit about some of my non-ASM communication stuff. Is, is that okay? Okay. All right. So yeah. when I when I was a postdoc, um, I after I finished graduate school, I went to the University of Minnesota. I knew I wanted to move to one of the coasts and eventually found a position in a great research lab in the Bronx. So I moved to New York. And being in New York, I thought, okay, well, it's time to like take advantage of being in this big city and find out you know, what kind of cool stuff is going on. And I found this place called Genspace. And Genspace is the first community biolab, uh, kind of tied with this other one that's uh, on the West Coast called BioCurious. And now there's quite a number of them in large cities, not only in the US, but around the world. Um, and it's basically a place for people to visit and learn and get hands-on experience doing all, all kinds of different science you can do. Um, molecular biology, where you do a little bit of cloning or play with different DNA sequences. Um, but one of the things that struck me about this particular space when I first started um, volunteering there, which was back in 2012, was how many people who were part of the community were really interested in mushrooms. I found so many people who were interested in bioremediation or growing their own mushrooms, uh, composting, um, 
And it was actually kind of funny because I would mention that I was a mycologist and this is where I learned to always uh, preface it by saying I'm a medical mycologist because people would say, oh, you know all about mushrooms and I, I don't know anything about mushrooms. I know <laughs> only about these single-celled organisms that cause disease, um, and, but I've learned um, through working there. And, and actually there's a, a mycoremediation project that's going on um, currently at that space with members of the community who... Uh, may not have any formal scientific training, but are curious people who, uh, you know, read, uh, read online uh, or find um, some of these these spaces where they can meet with people who have common interests to not only watch, you know, YouTube videos, which I think oh, you can watch a YouTube video on just about anything nowadays, but to actually do some hands-on science, which is pretty cool. So citizen science, are you really doing some of the basic? Um, going through the scientific method and doing, uh, I, can you explain to me a, a little bit more about this? Um, because I'm thinking in terms of uh, molecular biology, how do you do that on a, on a practical application level? Oh, so it really depends. Um, there's, there's been a number of different, um, a number of different projects you can use molecular biology for. The first hurdle that anyone who's interested in molecular biology has to cross is actually learning about DNA and what are the tools that we have and how do you uh, move one piece of DNA from one small clear colorless vial to another small clear colorless vial. And so um, we at GenSpace, there are a number of different courses you can take. There's um, another space in New York called Biotech Without Borders. So there's a number of different places where you can take a class for um, a, a relatively affordable fee and learn those different tools, uh, things like restriction enzymes, um, CRISPR, uh, different ligases, what, what different plasmid backbones are, for example, then you might be able to start to see how different pieces of DNA, certain controlling regions called promoters, might be able to turn on and off different genes that would eventually become a protein product, something that maybe you want to make a lot of or something that maybe you want to turn on only uh, under certain conditions, right? A, a famous example would be like a biosensor where, where if um, you have E. coli that has a plasmid um, with some sort of red pigment, um, the red pigment might be under the control of, um, let's say, arsenic or something. And so uh, you can put the E. coli into arsenic and should there be, um, uh, I'm sorry, you can put the E. coli into water and should there be um, dangerous levels of arsenic, it would activate the transcription and translation of that, um, of that red pigment gene. Um, so the, the people who participate at, at GenSpace, some of them are scientists, like I, I started volunteering there in 2012, as I mentioned, and some come from a variety of different backgrounds. I actually, I love working there uh, because of all of the different backgrounds and the questions that arise, which are so logical and yet are things that I've never heard before, um, having worked in academics for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the one of the ways that I first became involved with um, with GenSpace was by volunteering f with a competition called the International Genetically Engineered Machine 
competition or iGEM. And there, this is primarily an undergraduate competition, but there's also a community bio lab, or there was at least um, when I when I was participating, there's a community bio lab track. So there were like seven different community bio labs who would have some high schoolers, some professionals who just come in there after hours or on the weekends uh, and compete trying to come up with a project that you can execute by the end of the summer. And then um, there's a, a big shindig called the the Jamboree, which they host uh, September or October every year, and all the teams come in and you know show off their their cloned project, uh, whether it's a biosensor or um, some other type of uh, cloned or recombinant product. Uh, there is a, a cloning requirement, um, and there's also a number of other requirements. There's a human outreach, so you have to reach out to the community in order to talk about molecular biology or synthetic biology, uh, and uh, there's a several other aspects as well that are important, such as designing a website. Uh, and so that's that was how I first became involved. And that's a great way for people who don't have necessarily an idea of how to execute some of those tools that, that I was talking about. How do you use them? Well, if you join an iGEM team at one of these community biolabs, that would be one place where you might be able to work alongside people who have scientific training in order to, you know, eventually complete a project, which is, you know, uh, something that you can actually finish hopefully within a three to four month period. Wow. So, so this usually happens over uh, like a summer, summer break or something like that, is it? I, it does in the case of when I worked at GenSpace. I know that there are many universities who um, start a little bit earlier in the year, but uh, that just by what our availability was at, at when I was doing this at GenSpace, that was a little less, um, we weren't able to start earlier. Right. Okay. So it sounds like these, these, um, like GenSpace and different biolabs to me, when I, when I hear you talking about it, it sounds like, um, what computers were like 30 years ago. There's all this, there's so many uh, applications and we're just starting to discover, uh, what, what, can actually happen in these in these labs. Is that fair to say? Oh, Ben, what a great comparison. That's exactly how many people in synthetic biology feel, where we are starting to have um, a large enough database of what different gene products can do, as well as the regulatory networks that control their expression, that we can start to design systems that will make specific outputs only when we want them. Uh, and not just in the way that um, uh, recombinant things, recombinant proteins or or products have been made, um, such as uh, insulin, the first recombinant protein. Uh, actually, I don't think it's a protein. The first recombinant molecule uh, that was made from E. coli, but the um, but more complex systems as well. Uh, an example would be was it, I, I think it was opioids that were made in yeast um, by the combination of several different organisms, uh, the, the genes from several different organisms which were expressed within Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Okay, so, so this sort of gets into um, genetically modified and you know there's a lot of um, ideas and fear around that. Would would you be able to talk to that a bit about what what actually is uh, genetically modifying something and uh, where is sort of the boundaries of that? Well, I can talk to what my ideas are. I, I believe the FDA, um, the Food and Drug Administration at the in the U.S. does not require you to report something as genetically modified 
if you use CRISPR to delete a gene or to, to make a gene defunct. Um, but if you add something in, it does count as a genetically modified organism. And uh, to me, both of those would actually be modified because you've used specific DNA modifying enzymes in order to change the genomic material within that organism. Uh, and there are, of course, many people who are afraid or fearful of certain GMOs for various reasons. Um, and so usually if I, if I do come across someone who um, expresses any type of anxiety or negative feelings towards GMOs, I try to discuss with them why it is that they feel that way. Uh, and of course, it's easy to point out that everything that we eat has DNA in it. Uh, and so there's no need to be afraid of eating DNA of a different sequence because we eat DNA all the time and that DNA does not actually become part of us or, or interact with our cells. It's broken down through our uh, digestive processes. But uh, there are, of course, other people who are more concerned with the the use of these different types of GMOs and the, the politics between the companies that own the particular strains and the farmers that use them. Uh, and that gets into, I think, a different type of fear, not necessarily one where the science is the cause uh, of, a, of somebody disliking this type of technology. It's also important to point out the history of people modifying organisms uh, where we didn't necessarily have the ability to, to go in at the molecular level and say, I want to eliminate this gene or that gene or add this particular um, uh, process. I want to add this metabolite, which will be beneficial for the nutrients of this particular organism, which we can do now. Previously, for example, um, when, when people wanted a new type of beer, they would UV irradiate Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is the, the organism, the microorganism that we use to ferment beer. And then make different types of beer and see how it tasted. And to me, it seems a lot safer if we're able to say what genes are actually being changed and what the byproducts are, whether that's going to be um, a new type of lipid or um, a, an extra acetyl that's added on to a byproduct so that it will change the, the flavor profile and maybe we'll have a, a more defined um, understanding of, of how those things are changing and not just kind of blanketly uh, causing random mutation uh, as UV irradiation tends to do. Mm, okay. All right. Oh, this, the, Julie, there's so much in there that I want to pull apart. I think, <laughs> right. I think we'll just have to sort of, uh, I'll try and just focus on a few things. Sure. So turning off a gene uh, sounds like it would be similar to crossbreeding and then you're just getting different um, genotypic uh, expressions. Is that right? Yes. So one way that people have previously made what I guess you could call in quotations, genetically modified organisms is to breed, let's say, two different types of apple trees because they want the crispness from one, but the flavor from another, right? Um, and you would actually have to find apples that have those traits uh, and then cross the, the trees that make those apples in order to hopefully get a hybrid that is able to synthesize the two traits that you want in a way that is desirable, right? Uh, and mm -hmm. one of those might be for crispness and one of them might be for uh, sugar content or something like that. Uh, and then you'd have to, you know, probably do that several times in order to get the right assortment of genes as well, right? It could be like, oh, this one got all the crispness and just a little bit of the sweetness and, or, or vice versa. Uh, and so, well, yeah, for sure. I, I understand that. I would just want to relate that too. Um, 
in horticulture, you know, plants, um, they have the PBR, the plants breeders rights. Mm-hmm. And when, when you start to understand it, it might take 30 years to crossbreed something, select it, crossbreed it again three or four times until you get a stable expression. Right. And no wonder people, you know, want to be, want to say, Hey, I've put all this hard work in. Um, I'd like to, I guess, I'm not sure if they they own the actual um, genetics of it or they just own the the um, expression of that. I'm not sure how that works. Uh, that's a, a good question and one that I think is not fully regulated, at least in the the U.S. court system. I know there's always the regulations are are quite a bit behind uh, the capabilities of technology. Right. So so in terms of. Um, there is genetic modification going on all the time, but then there's a other side of it is what happens when we add genes from something else, a different um, life form into that. So you can do that for a number of different purposes. One, one purpose I alluded to is adding a nutrition value. And this was something that was going on while I was a student at, at um, University of Minnesota. I met once with the, the researcher who was making the I th- I'm trying to remember what the rice was called now. Not yellow rice, but the the rice that had the extra vitamin A in it in order to um, become a, a source of vitamin A in populations where there wasn't a very diverse diet. And this would allow the, the people who ate that uh, rice to have vitamin A and then help to prevent blindness, which can happen in the case of vitamin A deficiency. Uh, and this... This idea was something that had a lot of pushback because the fact that if you add this gene to this rice and you start to grow it, it might leave the, the patties in which you are growing it. And it, it becomes a little harder to control where, where it might seed. I think this was the, the basis for the fear behind it. This was a, n- a number of years ago. Uh, to be honest, I'm not sure how that story ends. Mm. Okay. Uh, sorry if I'm jumping golden around rice. a bit. Sorry, no, 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 please do. So I, it's, it was called golden rice. <laughs> That's I was like, not yellow rice, golden rice. Is what, golden rice, yeah. okay. So so um, now the, I guess this touches on a bit of um, uh, philosophy uh, of how you think about things. There's quite a few people um, that I've talked to that uh, I would say more, you know, along the lines that actually nature provides everything and what we need to do is look after um, the earth the way that it's actually working healthily rather than editing things out of a gene sequence or... or messing, messing with the natural genomes of things that exist. Uh, right. And so what, what would you say to, to that? Well, I'll say in, in my uh, privileged life, I don't experience a lot of nutritional deprivation in my diet, right? So that's not something that's necessarily going to affect. I mean, I would I would eat the the golden rice. I don't know if that's come across, but I don't think that there's anything inherently dangerous about adding um, nutritional value or you know specific um, genes to to a plant or or um, to something else that we might eat. I do think that um, some of it is very situational. And, and I heard once a talk by the, a researcher who is trying to develop a mosquito 
that would not have a particular protein in it that would make that mosquito susceptible to dengue virus. So this is a different type of genetically modified organism. It's not one that we would eat, but it is, the idea was that this researcher would release this mosquito into the wild. Um, and I, I believe this was not going to be a gene drive. And a gene drive is something that would flush through the population um, outside of Mendelian genetics. It wouldn't necessarily have to be a dominant allele, but uh, it would still be released into the wild, this dengue um, impermeable mosquito, which uh, to mix and potentially, you know, bite people as mosquitoes do. Um, and the researcher, before he began his talk, took a survey, and this was at a large conference, a large scientific conference, and said, who here would feel comfortable if uh, we release these mosquitoes in your neighborhood? And I, I don't remember the exact number, but it was somewhere around like, let's say 20 to 30% of people that raised their hand. Um, and I think that there's a little bit of fear even within the scientific community to, to mess with the, the natural order of things, right? So for example, uh, this was just to eliminate the ability of mosquitoes to be infected, but some other types of mosquito modifications have been suggested that might diminish the mosquito population. So it's actually a lethal mm. mutation and that would uh, lead to fewer bites, which would be good, but then a, a lower population overall. And then that might mess with, for example, the the predators that eat those mosquitoes, the fish or the birds, or we're not really sure how many different animal populations might be affected by changing the numbers uh, in that sense. Mm, okay. But then the, the researcher followed up by saying, I, I've done studies, or he's done studies um, in Australia, which is uh, where he was from, looking at dengue um, uh, endemic area, areas. Uh, and there it is almost 100% where people say, it's okay and I want this to be released. And that's because they and their children and their families are the ones that are most likely to be affected by actually getting dengue, which can be a very serious disease. Whereas most of the researchers were from uh, North America where uh, we don't have a lot of dengue, at least not yet. So I, I think mm -hmm. some, sometimes your opinion on the use of these technologies, sorry, it's a really long uh, anecdote, but I think that for me that really showed how situational one's, one's viewpoint can be. Uh, on how you feel about some of these genetically modified organisms and using these technologies to benefit uh, human life because it is important to maintain uh, balance within the ecosystem, but you also want to protect your families and loved ones from getting these terrible diseases. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it, that's something that I have um, had quite a few conversations about before. It's you don't know how good you have it, until you don't have it anymore. And then, then you would welcome any solution. Right. And it's also pro quite easy for us to say that things are of the natural order uh, at this point because we have had this uh, industrial farming com um, ability for you know several generations now. We've had very similar vaccines. Uh, vaccines were introduced, um, you know, uh, a lot of the, the standard um, MMR and and. Um, diphtheria and things like that were introduced at the beginning of the 1900s. So people have not remembered the, the, the population memory of what it was like to have an increased um, rate of, of childhood mortality, for example. That's kind mm. of gone with generations that have passed. And so uh, to call what we have now the natural uh, order of things is to kind of forget what the natural order of things was before we started to change some of the, the environmental conditions that we live in. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. 
I think this I think this opens up uh, a whole nother podcast episode on on uh, how do we cultivate uh, a good relationship with nature and and uh, nurture her as she nurtures us and sort of live in a symbiotic way. I think there's a lot of we could go down philosophy and and all sorts of things with that. But I'd like to just bring it back a little bit. Sure. Um, before we before we finish up, bring bring it back to uh, what are you doing now and uh, what are you looking forward to? What am I doing now? Um, in the immediate, I am uh, preparing a presentation so that I can talk to researchers about how best to um, communicate uh, their how they can best communicate their scientific results in a very headline driven world. I think that it's easy for folks to forget just how little time we all have. And the the more interesting you make your research sound from the get-go, the more likely people are to click on what it is that you're trying to get them to read. And so uh, that's, that's what I was doing right before you called. Um, and what am I looking forward to? I mean, I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to this um, conference because it's we always it's always so much work right up until um, microbe with the societies that that put them on. Um, I look forward. I mean, I will say that my favorite part of my job is um, hosting the podcast Meet the Microbiologist, and that's because I I really love podcasts. I you probably have listened to many before starting your own. I've listened to podcasts for 10, 15 years, um, science, politics, culture, all types. And it just makes me very happy to be able to contribute to this space. Uh, and uh, so that's that's one thing that I continue to be excited to think, who else would I like to talk to? And what are the types of questions I'd like to ask them? Mm-hmm. So as, as we sort of uh, round out the conversation, you know, this podcast is called The Probiotic Life. And I think we've focused more on soil health. That's just because that's sort of my interest in uh, where I've sort of come from, uh, composting and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But what what would you say um, in your mind when you think of a probiotic life, and we're talking about probiotics in terms of the literal meaning for life as opposed to a probiotic, right. what, what does that look like for you? What does a probiotic life look like? I mean, a probiotic life for me is probably trying to live in... A probiotic life for me is taking care of my health and the health of my environment to the best of my abilities um, while maintaining my own health. Uh, so that would mean things like trying to create as little waste as possible, um, to try and get sleep, to try and eat a well-balanced diet, um, et cetera. So, so uh, all of those things in conjunction. Mm, okay. And, and uh, Julie, you have a podcast and your own platform to, to share your thoughts. But um, to, to finish up, what would you really, what do you want to convey uh, to the listeners uh, and to me? What is uh, one or two takeaways that you really want to leave us with? I think that technology is changing very quickly. Uh, this I can say from the synthetic biology and molecular biology world that I'm in, but we could look at applications of graphene as a new material or um, or examples in other fields as well. And I think that the rapid pace with which science advances can inhibit some people from just diving in 
Uh, and I, I guess what I'd like to encourage people to do is to be curious and, and just, you know, if you're not familiar with the language uh, or if you don't know the basic steps, well, everyone started somewhere and, and just kind of jump in and uh, find out all the cool stuff about the world around us. Mm-hmm. And if you're interested in microbiology, there's this great podcast called Meet the Microbiologist. <laughs> there's actually, I, I have to say um, that I, I do love my podcast, but uh, that's just because, uh, as I said, I love podcasts. There's a whole number of great podcasts from um, ASM as well. And I've learned a lot in particular from Vincent Rockinello, who hosts, I, it must be three or four different podcasts all on science, very um, impressive output. Uh, and so it, those are also, um, I would recommend, that's one of the, the first science podcasts I listened to is This Week in Microbiology. He does one on virology, one on evolution, one on immunity. Um, but that for me was maybe my gateway science uh, podcast. Fantastic. And in fact, um, I, st- I started listening. That was the first uh, ASM podcast I listened to was the um, Urban Agriculture, which uh, must have been five or six years ago now. I think, yeah, I um, think that that's one we're no longer um, continuing to update. But, uh, you know, okay. Meet the Microbiologist was a revival of Meet the Scientists. So there were 60, 65 episodes that were already archived. And so who knows if the right host comes along, maybe uh, that one will be revived as well. Mm-hmm, for sure. So Julie, I would love for you to share, where can people um, uh, find out what you're doing, uh, connect with you and uh, share a little bit, bit about the, um, the biolab that you're a part of? Oh, sure, certainly. So, I mean, I'm on Twitter all the time. Uh, if Even if I'm not actively tweeting, I'm usually trying to just like get most of my news from that source and uh, that's at Julie Marie Wolf. Um, but GenSpace... Uh, is genspace.org and there's a number of different classes. Some of them are molecular, um, as I mentioned, uh, and I I teach one of the introductory courses there. There's also a number of of classes on biodesign. There's microremediation, as I mentioned, using mycelia to make different types of furniture and lamps and things like that. Um, So there's, there's a lot of really cool stuff going on there. Sounds like I want to join. It's it's a great place. If you're ever in New York, let me know. For sure. And thank you, Julie, for sharing of your time and your knowledge. Thanks for being on The Probiotic Life. Thank you very much, Ben, for um, having me on the show. It was a real pleasure to speak with you today. There you go. Thanks, Julie, for joining us on The Probiotic Life. And I may take you up on that offer. Uh, You can find Julie on Twitter at Julie Marie Wolf. I'll have that link in the podcast and uh, links to her show, Meet the Microbiologist and the ASM website. Uh, Thanks all for listening. I appreciate your feedback about the episodes because feedback helps us to serve you better. Uh, Thank you all for supporting the show. If you decide to invest in the exploration of the probiotic life, you can do so at patreon.com slash probiotic life. So, may the beneficial microbes be with you. And until next time, cheers. Thank you for listening to The Probiotic Life. You can find us on Facebook at The Probiotic Life, on Instagram, The Probiotic Life, and on our website, theprobiotic.life.
and welcome to the Pro Budget Life. I'm Jafis, and I'm progressing your Pro Budget Life. Okay.